you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In 1937, Amelia Earhart, who was an American aviation pioneer, attempted a round-the-world flight in a Lockheed Electra. She had already accomplished many things. She was the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean in 1932, and she'd written two books about her aviation experiences. That experience that she'd gained meant she was certainly qualified for the task of flying around the world. But on July 2nd, 1937, she took off and was never seen again. On December 5th, 1945, five Avenger torpedo bombers manned by 14 airmen took off from Fort Lauderdale in Florida on an overwater navigation training flight. Radio transmissions from the plane suggested that they had got lost. Eventually those transmissions stopped and the planes were never heard from or seen again. What makes things even stranger is that after dark, two PBM Mariner seaplanes were dispatched to search for those missing planes. At 19.30 hours, one of the planes called in a routine radio message, but after that, it was never heard from again. In 1962, a Lockheed Constellation took off over the Pacific Ocean, a military plane carrying 96 soldiers and 11 crewmen. They were never seen again, and no wreckage was ever found. In 2005, Helios Airways Flight 522 was completing the short flight from Cyprus to Greece. They veered off course, so the control room attempted to contact them to correct this. But the plane was ignoring all radio transmissions. Two F-16s scrambled to try and intercept the plane and see what was happening. As the F-16s drew alongside, the pilots noticed that the captain's chair on Flight 522 was empty. The co-pilot wasn't moving and oxygen masks were dangling from the ceiling. Everyone on board the flight was dead and only the autopilot was keeping the plane in the air. Aviation mysteries have a very unique mystique all of their own. They are perfect fodder for conspiracy theorists. But even without bringing conspiracies into the equation, just the question of what happened is enough to occupy many enthusiasts on that topic. In this digital age, we can forget how big the world actually is. And in the early days of aviation, especially, a plane going missing would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. The explanations for these missing planes are more than likely quite mundane when you factor in 
what can go wrong. But an unsolved mystery is an unsolved mystery. And even when the wreckage is found, there's still a sense that we will never truly know what happened, what decisions were made in the year that may have caused something to go wrong. Was it a decision that caused something to go wrong? We can never be inside the plane to see what happened. Those moments are lost to us. And all we can really do is try to piece the clues together. But what if we could be on board? What if we could see what happened? In the Odyssey of Flight 33, we discover that what happened was the Twilight Zone. You're riding on a jet airliner en route from London to New York. You're at 35,000 feet atop an overcast and roughly 55 minutes from Idlewild Airport. But what you've seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection on the aircraft or the crew. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. And the men you've just met are a trained, cool, highly efficient team. Problem is simply that the plane is going too fast and there is nothing within the realm of knowledge or at least logic to explain it. Unbeknownst to passenger and crew, this aeroplane is heading into an uncharted region well off the beaten track of commercial travelers. It's moving into the twilight zone. What you're about to see we call the Odyssey of Flight 33. First broadcast on February 24th, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Justice Addis. Now this episode was originally supposed to be directed by our old friend Douglas Hayes, but Justice Addis was a last minute replacement. I can't really find why that was, but it's interesting because in Douglas Hayes' last episode, uh, he was quite a prolific Twilight Zone director. He directed quite a few. I did wonder, well, why did he direct so many in season one and two, but not go on from there? And I do wonder whether there was maybe some sort of disagreement on this one, which caused him to break his tie with the Twilight Zone. I'm not too sure, I can't really say for certain, but just as Addis took over and he would stick around for two more Twilight Zones, and they are the Rip Van Winkle caper and No Time Like the Past. So his three episodes all concern time travel in one form or another, with the Rip Van Winkle caper being a little bit different because it's using suspended animation rather than traveling through time. There is one other Twilight Zone connection too with Justice Addis. He was the partner of Hayden Rourke, who played Sykes in A Penny for Your Thoughts, which we spoke about recently. Other than that though, I have to tell you, I can't really find much information about him. His directing career was relatively short. He was active between 1953 and 1968. He directed a few of the shows that we often hear about during our dissections of The Twilight Zone. Although there are several instances where he'd only do single episodes that are also several where he'd really stick around for a while too, like directing 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, or 38 episodes of The Schlitz Playhouse. But then after 1968, his credits just stop. He would have been about 50 then, so maybe he just wanted to take things easy. I really don't know, but unfortunately he died of pneumonia 
1979 at the age of 62. So let's talk about our rod sailing opening narration. Slightly different in a way than usual, he doesn't close out with In the Twilight Zone, and he actually closes out with the title of the episode itself. It's also quite interesting how he's careful to be very complimentary about the quality of the airplane, the training of the pilots. It's as if he's maybe trying to at least be a little reassuring to the audience, as if to say, look, air travel is fine. This flight's just that little bit different. I like his slight sense of urgency as well and his seriousness in this one. His placement outside the cockpit isn't bad, but I think it would have been good to have him sitting with the passengers on the plane and the camera just rolling through the cabin and eventually settling on sailing. That would have been quite good. Maybe reading a newspaper or smoking a cigarette. Oh, hold on a minute. You feel anything? Feel anything? No, what do you mean? I don't know, I felt something. Something funny. Like the sensation of speed. I can't put my finger on it. I guess I'm getting old. True airspeed 470, we're level. You suppose we picked up a tailwind? Yeah, maybe those jet streams are tricky. It's that crazy feeling I can't shake. I can't feel a tailwind, but I feel something. Everything looks fine. Magellan, try and get me a ground speed check with the Doppler. Indicates 900. That's impossible. I better check with Loran. So here we are on Global Flight 33 in pretty crowded cockpit. Five people doing various roles. Now, there is quite a bit of technical aviation talk in this episode, and with good reason. Rod Sailing's brother, Robert, at the time that the story was conceived, was an aviation writer for United Press International, and Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion documents how this episode came about. And Robert Sailing recalls to Zickery, there was some mail on his desk at Cayuga Productions, and on the top was an envelope from American Airlines, and he opened that just about first. It was a brochure offering a mock-up of a 707 passenger cabin to any studio that was going to film a scene. It was something they used in stewardess training and they decided to build another one. They had this one on the west coast and they were going to rent it out or sell it. And he goes on to say, We go back out to the studio and he hasn't opened one goddamn piece of mail except this. We get to the car and he says, you drive. And I thought, oh God, something's wrong because he never let me touch one of his cars. He wouldn't even let me put my finger on it, let alone drive it. We're driving and he's still looking at this brochure. All of a sudden he closes it and says, Bob, suppose you had a jet over the Atlantic and it picked up a freak tailwind of such velocity that its ground speed was something like 8,000 miles an hour and it went so fast that it went through a time barrier and when it came in over Idlewild Airport there wasn't any more airport they were back in prehistoric times now tonally apart from some light-hearted banter between the crew and the stewardesses this is a pretty serious episode 
deadly serious at times and I won't lie, but on occasion the brilliantly deadpan deliveries of Robert Stack, Peter Graves and Leslie Nielsen in the movie Airplane did come to mind. That is of course not the fault of this episode, that movie came much later, but in amongst all of this seriousness, Sailing does find the odd moment of levity. You know, you talk about ailments. Well, I had an aunt once in Boise, Idaho, had one of the worst livers in the medical history of the state. That woman, when she passed on, rest her soul, would you believe it, there were five medical associations who were bidding just to get her liver in a bottle on display. But her mother, that was my father's sister, she absolutely refused to let them show her liver. And it was like I said to my late husband, you can't... What did you say you were, dear? A group captain, madam. I'm military attaché to the British Embassy in Washington. Oh, isn't that wonderful? We've all been there, whether it be on a plane or a bus or somewhere where that person latches on and tries to talk to us when you're really not in the mood for doing it. But even that moment of levity soon passes as the tension begins to build. The story comes back to the cockpit with our five crewmen. Now there is quite a large cast in this one so I won't go through everyone's bios in great depth but we do need to touch upon a couple of things. John Anderson plays Captain Farver and we've met him before when Luke reviewed A Passage for Trumpet and he played Gabriel and we'll see him again in of late I think of Cliffordville and The Old Man in the Cave. And we often talk about our hard-working actors of the time, and he really was. He has over 200 credits to his name in a career that spanned from 1950 until his death in 1992. He has that very distinctive voice. He naturally sounds like a very stern leader, so he was a good choice for the captain. The first officer, played by Paul Comey, is a three-time Twilight Zone player. He played Marcuson in People Are Alike All Over, and we'll see him again in the parallel. Sitting at the back, we have Sandy Kenyon as the navigator. He always reminds me of Rod Serling in his looks. He's like a taller, skinnier version of Serling. And he too is a Twilight Zone three-timer. This was his first episode, then he turns up in The Shelter and Valley of the Shadow. So let's see if we can continue our run of Twilight Zone multiplayers with the other cockpit crew. Next we have Wayne Heffley, who played the second officer, and he did two Twilight Zones, this one, and black leather jackets. And then we're left with Harp Maguire as flight engineer Purcell, but unfortunately he only had the one Twilight Zone credit under his belt, but... What a room full of Twilight Zone regulars we have here. Five men with 13 Twilight Zone credits between them. And John Anderson reports in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that it was a good set to be on. And he said, We looked damn serious doing that show, but we had a blast filming that. The guys playing my co-pilots were great. The director had trouble getting us all settled because we were having so much fun. When you see me looking out at the dinosaur, I'm really looking at the poor director, and as soon as he'd yell cut, we were cracking jokes again. We were confined to this little cockpit. Whenever the director said, there's a dinosaur, we had to pretend that it was out there. I saw the episode recently, and I was amazed I was able to spew out 
that technical gobbledygook. So at this point, Flight 33 is having trouble raising anyone on the radio. And then, all of a sudden... I might as well try to pull our way through and see if anything... Did we hit something? I don't know. Check for damage. Number three and four are still on the wing. They look okay. Ditto one and two. Everything seems to be in a piece. Priscilla, go after and check for cabin damage. Report back right away. Right. Better get on the horn and calm down. Anybody needs calming down. Tell the girls to stay with it. Right. We're in trouble. I don't know what kind of trouble. That light. That crazy light. What was it? There's something we'll have to find out. Quick, too. What was that shaking? Turbulence? I doubt it. It was more like a... Like a... Like a what? Like a sound shock wave. As if we'd gone past the speed of sound. So the plane is out of contact with the control tower and they're not sure where they are. The only option is to lower their altitude and try and recognize some sort of landmark that they can use to guide themselves in. I don't get it. It happens to be a fact, though. That's Manhattan Island down there. Manhattan Island? How could it be Manhattan Island? Where, where's the skyline? Where are all the buildings? I don't know where they are, but that's New York City, all right. This one little item seems to be amiss. Passengers? Yeah, I don't blame them. Oh, we're over land. I don't see any... Any what, Jenny? Any city, right? We don't either. It's funny how we take for granted these days that if a filmmaker wants a dinosaur, they can have a dinosaur with the magic of CGI. But for the Twilight Zone at this time, this was a pretty ambitious shot when the cockpit crew look down and they see a brontosaurus looking up at them. I think it would have been quite good to be privy to the conversations that went on when people read Sailing's script and realised that he wanted to put a dinosaur in the episode. Now, Zikri documents in the Twilight Zone Companion how this was done, and he interviewed the special effects wizard Wa Chang, and he said the dinosaur was one of the puppets used in the Jack Harris picture Dinosaurus, for which Project Unlimited did the special effects. The partners in the project were Gene Warren, Tim Barr, and myself. We also did the effects for The Time Machine, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, as well as the TV series The Outer Limits, some of the effects on Star Trek, and many more. Now Buck Houghton said to Zikri, the most expensive piece of film ever shot for the Twilight Zone was the dinosaur watching the plane go by. It cost us $2,500, and God, business affairs, raised hell with me about it. So that's what Zikri says in the Twilight Zone companion, but... Martin Grams Jr. adds a bit more detail in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. And he elaborates on how the dinosaur was created for the Twilight Zone, but also used in the universal release of Dinosaurus. And Martin Grams Jr. puts the price of this few seconds of footage at $3,940, which was almost five times more than the highest paid actor in the episode. And the co-pilot Paul Comey said, When we made that episode, we never saw the dinosaur. We played make-believe and imagined it was there and reacted on cue. 
They made the stop motion effect separately so I've always assumed the dinosaur scenes were inserted later. I remember watching it on television and remarking how cheap the effect was and impractical, but I guess it worked and I probably get more letters and phone calls from fans because of the Twilight Zone than any other show that I've done. So he says it was cheap, but I suppose in this day and age, maybe. I actually think that this low tech stop motion shot, it's pretty good. It's the best for that wide shot that we first see where the dinosaur turns around and then looks up because it comes on so quickly and is only there for a few seconds. If they stuck with that first wide shot, I think it would have been that bit more effective because it's such a quick thing but then they go back for a slightly closer shot which gives your brain that bit more time to process it and you start to see the flaws in it. But you know what they tried and I think for the time they did really well. But time is the operative word for Global Flight 33. Somehow in some way we not only went through the sound barrier but we've gone back in time. Well what do we do about it? Skipper. Fuel is down to 49,435 pounds. Well, then here's what we're going to do about it. We're going to push this baby up until she's going as fast as she can. We're going to climb until we get back into that jet stream, and then, then we're going to try to go back where we came from. So they fly back up into the jet stream to try and get back to their own time, and their attempt isn't a complete failure, but instead of bringing them back to their own time, they come forward. To 1939. Now there's a bit of business here where the crew raised LaGuardia Airport on the radio and this did present some difficulties that needed Robert Serling's input to iron it all out. It's one of those things though where you know people in the know, people who know the technicalities of these things like maybe pilots or communications officers will see the implausibility of what's on screen but the rest of us don't know any better so it's quite easy to go with it but it's good that sailing was so keen to get these details right so when he was communicating with rod robert said frankly it's not a hundred percent accurate and it can't be because the situation you present is so fantastic that you've presented the air crew with an almost impossible impasse Air ground communications have changed so since 1940 that it's likely that a Boeing 707 with 1960 communications equipment would have one hell of a time even raising a control tower with 1940 equipment. Frequencies, for example, are completely different. I've included some stuff on the crew trying to tell LaGuardia they're a 707 and asking for a radar vector into Idlewild. This telegraphs a surprise ending and you may want to change it around a bit. And Mark Zickery further documents this. Back and forth between Robert and Rod Sailing. And Robert says, He calls me up about two weeks later. I was back in Washington and he says, Hey, I need cockpit dialogue for that jet that goes back in time. I said, You need what? And Rod says, Cockpit dialogue. What happens in the cockpit when they pick up the tailwind? I said, Rod, you've got an impossible, implausible situation to begin with, so how in hell can I give you the cockpit dialogue? He said, well, give me something about the radio checkpoints they tried to reach. Something about what would be happening in the airplane. The ground speed versus the true airspeed and all that stuff. I said, okay, I'll try. 
And then he goes on to say, there was a TWA international captain living in Washington. He commuted up to New York to take his flights out. I called him. He came over to the house one night and I guess we killed a bottle of bourbon between us and came up with the dialogue in the cockpit. I kept telling him the story and we'd act out the roles. Then I called Rod back. I never could write to him. I always had to call him. He was always in a hurry and gave him the dialogue over the phone. So I think it's good that Sailing took this time to get that dialogue right because I think if you're a, an expert or skilled in any field, sometimes when you watch a show where they're portraying that, the, the changes can seem very harsh. You know, I'm thinking of an example of maybe a doctor or something watching a TV show about a doctor and if the details aren't right, it can take you out of it. So it's good that Rod Sailing took the time to get these things right. LaGuardia, this is Global 33. We're on the northeast leg of LaGuardia Range. Our VOR and ILS appear inoperative. Request radar vector to Idlewild ILS. You request what? Radar vector to Idlewild ILS. What flight did you say this was? LaGuardia, this is Global Airlines Flight 33. Now stop fooling around, we're short on fuel. Global 33? What kind of aircraft is this? This is a jet aircraft. Did you say a jet aircraft? Yeah, let me handle it. LaGuardia, this is a jet. We have four big, lovely turbines, and they're getting hungry, running short on fuel. We want a radar vector to Idlewild. You have us in radar contact, or don't you? I don't know who you are, and we don't know anything at all about radar or jets or anything else. But if you're really low on fuel, we'll clear you to land here. Now, while the boys are up front trying to figure this mess out, there are two stewardesses out back who have the difficult task of keeping the passengers happy. So a brief mention to them, and it is brief, not out of any disrespect, but more that the two actors don't really have much on their resumes. Beverly Brown, who played Janie, only has 10 credits to her name, the last one being in the film Cool Runnings in 1993, where she played Lady Number One. Nancy Rennick, who played Paula, has a few more credits, one of which was the Twilight Zone episode, The After Hours, where she played Mrs. Kivas, but her credits don't go beyond 1965. She did live until 2006, though, so I hope that maybe she retired from acting to have a family or to do something that made her happy. So here they are in 1939, and... The captain makes the decision that they can't land here. He doesn't really go into the rationale behind that. With our knowledge of time travel films now, I can only think that maybe he thought the effect of that would be damaging to time itself. I don't know, but the crew don't object and they decide that with limited fuel, they're going to give it one more try. But the captain decides to inform the passengers before they do. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain. What I'm about to tell you... What I'm about to tell you is something I can't explain myself. Your crew is as much in the dark as you are. If you look out on the left-hand side of this aircraft, you'll see directly below an area called Lake Success. Those buildings aren't the United Nations. They happen to be, they happen to be the World's Fair. 
What I'm trying to tell you is that somehow, some way, in some manner, this aircraft has gone back into time. And it's 1939. Now, before we finish up with this episode, Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic documents quite an interesting aspect of this show that went on behind the scenes. Now, Rod Serling at times has been accused of plagiarism. And this came to a head on one occasion surrounding this episode. A gentleman by the name of Lewis E. Holtz submitted some scripts to Cayuga. A couple of months later, he received a rejection. Part of that feedback was because the stories were too time machinist. And amongst those stories was a story called Snipped Thread, which was a story about time travel. And days after viewing this episode, Holtz wrote to Sailing, claiming that the Odyssey of Flight 33 was ripped off from this story, Snipped Thread. And Holtz said the details were different, but the nugget, the hinge, was identical. And he went on to say, Rod, this coincidence is not unusual in the teleplay business. Creative minds run on the same uncharted lanes. But great guns, fellow. This is too, too coincidental, or so it seems to me. So Sailing's response was to send him the teleplay for The Odyssey of Flight 33 and a copy of his own story, Snipped Thread. And Sailing said, Neither the situation, the characters, the story projection, or the conclusion have even the remotest similarity. I find it difficult to understand, or indeed, I'm able to figure out just what coincidences you're referring to. In my view, these two stories share not one thing in common. At least 15 letter writers each month accuse us of stealing material from them. Frankly, it has become impractical to even open up manuscripts because the process carries with it the built-in possibility of having to respond to often violent accusations and with it the added inconvenience of having to devote time trying to explain to the letter writers that we are a legitimate production unit who have enough trouble getting a show on air without having to spend time answering correspondence. So it seems to have struck a nerve there, you know, if it's uh, if he's always been accused of it, I can see where he's coming from, you know, why even bother accepting manuscripts? But Sailing did try to pacify Holt by buying one of his story submissions, which was called Our Youth. And that was made into the later episode, A Short Drink from a Certain Fountain, in Series 5. So back to the Odyssey of Flight 33. You know, throughout the episode, I have enjoyed it. The cast fit their roles nicely. There's a decent amount of tension. It looks pretty good. They use stock footage well. And I think the sense of being there on a plane is done very well. We've already spoken about that authentic dialogue. But what takes me from enjoying the episode to absolutely loving it is the ending. As the cockpit crew go for their second attempt to move forward in time, there's a calmness that settles over them. It seems that they know in all likelihood they're going to die, but they're going to give it that one last try. Do we see them crash into the waves? No, we don't. Do we see them land in a time that's not their own and wander out onto the tarmac? No, we don't see that either, although that might have been quite a fitting ending. 
for a Twilight Zone episode. What we do get is the plane still flying. They're low on fuel and it ends. And I love that. You know, I read out those True Life aviation mysteries at the beginning of the show. And part of the appeal of those stories is that while there are very likely very plausible explanations for all of them, there's just that part of you that wonders whether something strange, something in the realms of the fantastic happened to them. Here for the first time we get an answer that fulfills what we really want the explanation for those stories to be. They entered the Twilight Zone. With the melding of fiction and a very real occurrence, the disappearance of aeroplanes, it's as if the Twilight Zone was made for this very scenario. I often speak about why the Twilight Zone reaches out to some people, or why some people end up in it. It may be because of some wrong that they've committed that they get punished for, or occasionally to lift someone up who needs it. But when it's at its most unsettling, is when there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to why the Twilight Zone affects some person or persons. It just does. Think back to the season one episode, and when the sky was opened, we're in a similar place to that, things just happening, and we don't know why. Maybe they just went somewhere that they shouldn't have gone, some piece of airspace that just happens to cross over into the Twilight Zone. I spoke a couple of episodes ago about heavy hitters in this season, and whether it has any left. And I think I'd quite like to put this in that category, because I do think it's quite excellent. But it's Rod Serling's closing narration that really nails it for me, and quite frankly gives me chills. They're still out there like some aviation equivalent of a ghost ship. There are times when you might see them, there are times when you might hear them, and there are times when a control tower somewhere may have some brief contact with them. But it's just that brief contact as they try to find their way back from the twilight zone. A global jet airliner en route from London to New York on an uneventful afternoon in the year 1961. But now reported overdue and missing, and by now searched for on land, sea and air by anguished human beings, fearful of what they'll find. But you and I know where she is. You and I know what's happened. So if some moment, any moment, you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast, engines that sound searching and lost, engines that sound desperate, shoot up a flare or do something, that would be Global 33 trying to get home from the Twilight Zone. Now let's read some listener feedback in Submitted for your approval. I've had an email from a gentleman by the name of Chris Reeve and he says I recently listened to your episode on dust really well done episode tracing the history and evolution of this fascinating and I would say powerful story the idea 
that the murder and aftermath of Emmett Till was an inspiration for this was fascinating. I found the Twilight Zone episode personally powerful, among the most powerful of episodes and speaks to us directly in our violent culture. I realise I am in the small minority. To me, the episode speaks movingly and convincingly of the destructive and endless cycles of violence. And it gives a hopeful message of moving beyond violence, of forgiveness and unity. It's a nearly transcendent message and one applicable today as we see the terrible fruits of violence around us in drug wars, in domestic abuse situations, in terrorism and perhaps even among the often bitter political atmosphere much of the West finds itself in today. But the message of the episode offers hope that even in the bleakest scenarios when all hope seems lost, as humans we can still rise above the baser parts of our natures, choosing to build a better society based on mercy and forgiveness. Further, as a person of active religious faith, I find the dust to be a fascinating metaphor for spiritual and religious phenomenon, including miracles. Sometimes things happen which can be viewed providentially or coincidentally. Faith is about a choice and is a way of seeing the world. Again, where the salesman sees the dust as worthless, a cheap trick to victimize a helpless old man, the father sees in it some hope for salvation and treats it as such. Similarly, religious texts and traditions can be viewed skeptically or faithfully, or a mixture of both. So the episode has something metaphorical and perhaps powerful to say about the role of faith. I don't pretend that these were at all what Rod Serling was aiming for, but they are what I get out of the episode, and why I see this as one of the best episodes of the series. The audience is confronted with the relevant and engaging moral questions. How do I confront evil, violence, hatred, distraction, apathy and laziness in a meaningful way? Keep up the good work, your depth, warmth and tone are most appreciated. Well, your message is most appreciated, Chris, as well. So thank you for that. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, what we all take from episodes of the twilight zone what we all take from anything you know that interpretation is always there and who's to say it shouldn't be and i think rod serling would be quite pleased that someone has looked at a piece of his work and saw those things in it so good stuff thanks for those thoughts chris i appreciate it now an old friend of the show grace has emailed me and she said Love the new episodes, Tom. Awesome readings of the stories behind the episode 22. It's great to get these bonus episodes in the mix. I've loved The Twilight Zone from a very young age, first watching it between five to seven years old. I was pretty much an instant fan. This is one that sticks out in my memory as a small child, sending absolute shivers through my bones and several sleepless nights thinking the creepy nurse would visit me in a dream to foretell my death. In watching it recently, this episode still gives me the chills. You can tell it was based in and around that whole ghost story genre, because it definitely has that feeling about it. I think the videotape format adds an extra layer of eeriness to it as well. What makes me sad about the videotaped episodes is 
not the way they look in comparison to the filmed ones, but more on the level of restoration. Tape degrades over time differently than film stock. This is the best the videotape episodes will ever look, and that makes me sad. It's just too bad this is the best they'll look. Wavy lines, static, and all. Thanks for all the new content, Tom. Awesome work. We'll keep on listening. Well, I hope you do, Grace. Thank you. I, I appreciate your feedback, as always. Grace emails me from time to time, and it's, it's nice to get regular sort of contact with people who enjoy the show, and I always enjoy that interaction. So, good thoughts on 22. I think we're in a, in a similar place on that one. I've also got an email from Robert Gillies. I receive normally two types of email. There's usually the, there's the ones that come in and say, you know, great job on the show, enjoy the show, and leave it at that. And I always respond to them and, you know, thank people for taking the time. But I don't necessarily read those in the show. And then there's the ones where people are commenting on episodes or giving their own memories of the Twilight Zone. This one's a bit of both, so so forgive me if it seems self-serving reading out an email that is, is very much full of praise. I'm quite humbled by some of Robert's words, but he gives some nice um, memories on his own Twilight Zone watching, and, and I always enjoy hearing people's other memories of it. You know, we've all got them. And he says, Tom, I dropped you an iTunes review last week and was gratified to hear you mention it on air. I wanted to spend a little more time telling you about my appreciation of the Twilight Zone, the show, as well as the Twilight Zone, the podcast. TZ, the show, has always been a favourite of mine, and each New Year's Eve, in the States that is, the marathon would be on, and I would have it playing in the background at our annual party. We would dutifully switch to the ball dropping ceremony with two minutes to spare, and then quickly flip back. Though I am too young to remember the original run of the show, the syndicated shows were part of the background of my childhood. The scary episodes, thoughtful episodes and intriguing episodes seems to have always been with me. Your sense of which episodes are classics and which are just good episodes is unerring. Some hit all the marks and stand alone among the greatest achievements in the history of television. Others are high quality broadcasts of which I have no complaint, but also don't generate those shivers that indicate you've just seen something indefinitely important. Which brings me to your podcast. I used to have a long commute in my car and strove to find interesting content to listen to. I found a few podcasts and become a maven to the medium. Yours came across my iPhone after one of those aforementioned New Year's marathons. TZ was on my brain, and yours was the first and last podcast I found I needed. Early on, your episodes were few and far between, and for a while, to my chagrin, you stepped down and let someone take your place. However, the last few months have been such a joy because your uploads are more regular and plentiful. Your understanding of horror, quality writing, pacing, and TV production serve you and your listeners very well. You also humanise the creators of the show and stay away from hagiography while respecting their apparent greatness. Your classic episode detector that I mentioned earlier is always spot on. I eagerly listen to your assessment of each show to see if you and I agree. We tend to agree more often than not, but the best is when you find something good or not so good that it didn't catch the first time. Listening to your show feels like having a beer with a good friend 
and discussing a show that we both watched the night before. Additionally, I like your interpretation of the Twilight Zone as a thing, a place or entity that affects the characters that happen to be caught up in it. You readily admit that it's a creation of your own device, but I know that I, and probably many others, have found themselves thinking the very same thing. As for your occasional forays into classic radio, or your readings of stories that inspired Twilight Zone episodes, keep them coming. It's a great change of pace, and your voice is well suited to that type of reading. Keep up the good work, and thanks again for all your time and effort. It's truly appreciated. Well, thank you, Rob, and your time and effort is appreciated too in, in sending me a, a very kind email like that. There's a lot of things to address in there, so I'll just address one or two things. You mentioned that regularity that was so sporadic over the past few years. Well, as regular listeners will know, the uploads have been more regular lately, and I've kept a more or less weekly schedule. There's been some gaps here and there, and I think that's going to be the case from now on. I seem to have hit a nice groove where I'm getting the shows out and there will be times when I will take short breaks but I think the days of waiting months and months for a new podcast are thankfully over. I don't want to speak too soon but that seems to be the way of things at the moment so I'm happy you know it's it's really good to get into a new Twilight Zone every week every couple of weeks uh, and dig into it. I'm enjoying it and I'm enjoying putting the shows out and and this interaction with the listeners. So thank you, Robert. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if you want to get your emails onto the show, send me some thoughts about a, a past episode or an episode that we're covering, then email me at tom at the twilight zone podcast.com and you can send me an audio clip in an MP3 or just an email and I will uh, put them on the show. So what's coming up next? Well, Let's think back to that comment I made about heavy hitters and whether there's any left in this season. And I think the Odyssey of Flight 33 is a really good, strong Twilight Zone that I was happy to rediscover. And it's good to know that there are those episodes that, you know, to me, I I rediscover them and I think, wow, that was a really good Twilight Zone episode and I'd forgotten all about that one. But the next one I haven't forgotten all about. It is another of those episodes that has quite a reputation as being a Twilight Zone turkey, shall we say. But even with that foreknowledge, I'm not going to come to this with the intention of just going in and giving it a bashing. It's all about rediscovering the episodes and I'm going to try and find the best in it. And that episode is Mr. Dingle the Strong. If there is any good in it, hopefully I'll find it. But if there isn't, then I'll be honest about that too. So we will speak about Mr. Dingle the Strong next time on the Twilight Zone podcast. (laughs) 